I want to begin by inviting you to join us on December 5th for a very special opportunity to serve our community at 11 a.m. That's 11 a.m. December 5th on a Sunday morning. As you know, for the past 10 weeks, we've been examining the book of James, God's word that gives us incredible instruction through these five chapters of uh, this book. It really at the heart of this book is this theme of faith with action. So on December 5th, we're going to be a church of action. We will have our worship services at 8.30 and at 9.30, but at 11 a.m. on Sunday, December the 5th, we would like for you to help us to personally invite 500 of our closest neighbors to Rich Fork to our community Christmas event that will take place later that week on December the 10th. We're going to need your help. On December 10th, uh, we will have on the field behind our church an opportunity for our community to come for a time of hope, encouragement, lights, Christmas tree lighting, a giant tree that we went all the way to Jefferson, North Carolina to pick out this week, activities for kids, uh, local dance ministry, carolers, hot chocolate, fire pits, s'mores, and, and just a lot of other things. But we want to make sure to invite those closest to Rich Fork. But in order to do that, we're going to need your help to be, again, a church of action. So on December 5th, 8.30 worship in our sanctuary, 9.30 worship in our multipurpose building, faith with action at 11 a.m. We will give you instruction in each of those services for that Sunday at 11 a.m. And we'll have maps and invitations and handouts for you and your family to be able to go out and shape our community by sharing the grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to need your help on December 5th. We're also going to need your help on December the 10th for that community Christmas. So through uh, this coming Monday, November 29th, you can sign up for a variety of ways to help, uh, whether that is serving food, preparing food, crafts, prep team, construction team, art, artistic team, uh, children's crafts, all those things. All that information can be found on our website by going to richfork.com events and registering for a community Christmas volunteer sign up. All those registrations are there, but don't forget December 5th, 11 a.m., we need your help. Now, with that said, let's pray and jump right in to James once again. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to once again examine the book of James and allow it to examine us. Uh, we have been walking through this book that has in so many ways, uh, just continue to shape and to hone and to sharpen uh, each of us in different ways. God, I thank you for those who have shared what James and your word has done uh, to them, some who watch on video, some uh, who watch in other areas, some who are with us on Sundays. Uh, we are thankful and know that your word is still changing lives, still shaping hearts, and we're just thankful to be a part of that. So help us as we walk through this passage today, um, as we examine in what do we trust, in whom or what do we trust that James leads us to today. In Jesus' name, amen. So 11 weeks in, and we are almost to the finish line of our study of the book of James. But the reality of this book, these, these five chapters, is that the impact of these words should never leave us. Once you've heard the word of God given to us through the book of James, 
a beloved leader in the early church, a family member to Jesus, James is respected and he interjects wisdom into followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but they continue to do the same for us today. We left James 4, 13 through 17 with the sobering reality that life is short. We are not in control. We are not God. Yet, we have hope in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We have hope, not because of our accomplishments, but of God's gift for each of us. As heavy as last week's message was, I hope you left with the reality about the brevity of our lives, but I hope you also left standing tall in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. As I sat down Monday evening to begin studying for this Sunday, I read James chapter 5, 1 through 12. I want to read them and then we'll rewind and then next week we'll get to the latter part of this passage. But maybe you will notice what I notice. James, once again, doesn't dance around any topic, anyone, or anything. Verse 1, chapter 5. Come, now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. From a strong warning in verse 1 through 6 towards a a heart consumed with wealth, James makes what appears to be a drastic shift. But after praying about it, I don't believe it's the case. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James concludes these words, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. If you would have been sitting in a gathering in and around A.D. 80 and one of the leaders of the early church would have read this letter to you, remember, it would have been one continual letter. 
no page breaks or nice tidy headings over the, the various sections. When I read this in my little ESV edition of James that we've handed out throughout this series, it breaks up these two sections and really divides them. But as I read through them, as I continued from verse 17 of chapter 4 through verse 12, for me, there's a theme that James might be calling the people of the church to explore. A question we'll explore this weekend and next. In whom or what do I trust? In whom or what do I trust? If you were to go back and read verse 1 through 6, then we would all have to agree that a major focus from James of growing up or maturing for the early church was surrounding the attitude of their hearts, uh, the heart of Christians towards their wealth, followers of Jesus, but their heart and their attitude towards the poor, their heart being full of generosity. This section includes verses that James gives to prepare the early believers to know how do they handle a, a very contrasting view of acquiring wealth at all costs versus remaining generous with the resources that God has placed upon them. But he does this boldly, almost confrontationally. Because listen to what he says in verses 1 through 6, and I'm summarizing. Your riches have rotted you. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. You have laid up your own treasures. You have withheld wages from the workers. You have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Essentially, James is saying, you have indulged to your heart's content and then some. He continues, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous all in pursuit of more. Yet he leads into verse 6 and he says, into this chapter, he leads and says, Come, now, you rich. The NIV makes it a little easier for us. Now listen, you rich people. Now before we continue, I realize that everybody watching, no matter how much or how little we view that we have, financially, pretty much all of us define someone being rich the same way. 99%, that's not a studied number, it's my guess. 99% of all of us define someone being rich as someone who has more than me. If you're in one bracket of income, the person above you, by the standard of the world, you might say is rich. Or may I be so bold to say richer. Here's the reality that may have happened in your mind when you just heard him say, come now, you rich. When you heard him say this word, you immediately equated rich with a person that has more than you, and you may have even pictured them in your mind. But James, he's not going to make this definition of rich so easy to toss around. He's not going to define rich with a dollar amount, but characteristics and traits of those who have trusted in their riches, who find their hope in their wealth alone. I know for some of you, this may be 
This may be the most awkward conversation of James to this point. We're fine if James wants to address our words, our anger, our marriage, our other relationships. I mean, James, you can even dive into our eternity. But don't talk about my money. However little or much I have, this is stepping over the line for some of us. But please don't miss out on this teaching from James to grow us up. This is not about the size of your barn or the level of investments that you have in your portfolio. Or you may even think, I don't have one of those. I have a checking account and it's always empty. The message of James and his defining wealth is not about a dollar amount. It's really about in whom or what do we place our trust? As I studied these verses, it was a glaring reality from James. If we put our trust and hope in possessions, our decisions and directions are controlled by those possessions. If we put our hope and trust in the possessions, then our decisions and directions begin to be controlled by those possessions. A possession, something that might become an idol, will always lead us back to what James has warned us about several times. Our possessions will always lead, always lead me back to what's best for me. My treasure trove, my bottom line. It's almost as if James is mining out the truth here. He starts at the top and he works his way closer and closer and closer to the central part of our heart. What drives you? Whom do you trust? Chapter one, it's a testing of your faith, a, a decision Will you seek joy? Then he took the shovel and he dug a little deeper into people, into us, and he asks, are you people of action? What about your speech? How do you listen? Do you control your anger? Then took another scoop. Do you, how do you view others? Do you exercise mercy over judgment? He takes his mining shovel and he scoops out a little bit more and examines the usage of our words, the pursuit of our wisdom, our short-sighted views of eternity and the reality of our mist-like existence. Then he calls the church to examine those who are rich. And I don't think this distinction is only to examine those outside the church, but those inside the church as well. James keeps digging, getting closer and closer to our hearts. Again, what does he say? You have riches that have rotted. Your shiny stuff, it's dull. What was new is now old. What once held your eye no longer grabs your attention. Then he digs deeper. Then as we become less enamored with what we already have, we want newer, bigger, faster. So then what? James says, then we begin, the attitude begins to drive us. We begin to cheat people out of what they've earned and we don't even care. We're so consumed with the pursuit of more that we're often driven by our pursuit of riches rather than using the resources that God has placed upon us for His glory. James, nor the rest of Scripture, even Jesus, is not forbidding us to have riches or wealth. But the questioning for us, the demanding question for us to ask, in whom or what, do I place my trust? Because what or whom I trust in begins to direct my decisions and 
the direction of my life. This is the tragedy. This is the tragedy that James is trying to speak toward early believers then and us today. I want to briefly introduce you to two people from history. And then I want to examine in whom or what they place their trust and how it impacted the lives of themselves and those around them. First, I want to introduce you to somebody whose name might be familiar. His name is Charles Michael Schwab. You've heard his name, Charles Schwab, a a current investment company, but in reality, it's not from the same family line. But Mr. Schwab was born in the 1800s. He was born into a middle-class family who manufactured blankets. He decides to go off to college. He quits college. He moves from his hometown in Williamsburg, Pennsylvania to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And there, he began to climb the ranks into the steel industry. He started at the bottom, literally driving railroad stakes into the ground. But by the time he was 35, he was the president of one of the largest steel producers in America. From 1917 to 1929, he became one of the wealthiest men in America. At one point, he built and lived in his New York mansion that he named Riverside. It had 75 rooms, and in 1900s, it was valued at $7 million. Today, that would have equated to $75 million estate. If he were alive today, at the height of his wealth, he would have been worth $500 to $800 million in a conservative estimate. But toward the end of his life, he began to be consumed with gambling, extramarital affairs, relationships, dealings with his money became quite questionable. And then the stock market crash of 1929, he was left almost bankrupt. In fact, upon his death, he was $300,000 in debt, $6 million in today's value. And Charles was living alone by himself, no extended family in a small apartment in New York. As I read about this icon of quote, American wealth, it saddened me to see this shift of trust that took place in his life. He really was once driven by a pursuit to care for his workers and his community, but it shifted. It shifted toward his personal wealth and his riches. His decisions were directed by what he trusted, and it led to his downfall. Allow me to introduce you to another person from history. Maybe you've heard of this woman, maybe not. Her name was Lottie Moon, born Charlotte Diggs Moon, later just Lottie, born in 1840 in Virginia. Her family before the Civil War was quite wealthy, which provided Lottie with an education that far surpassed the normal levels of education for most people, especially women in that era of time. She learned and became proficient at Greek, Latin, Italian, French, Spanish, She was one of the first women in the South to receive her master's degree. Lottie was also, just in her stature alone, she drew a crowd, but not because she was super tall, because she measured in at the giant size of four feet, three inches. She was brilliant, stubborn, 
at one of the most adamant skeptics at one point in her life was one of the most adamant skeptics of Christianity. At one point, she convinced her classmates that her middle initial, D for Diggs, actually stood for devil. Yet in 1958, through the consistent prayers of her classmates, the constant conversations and conviction, she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And on the next day, December 21st, 1858, she was baptized and immediately began to be, feel called to support or go to be a missionary. A young woman, single, four feet, three inches tall, highly educated, a missionary in the 1860s overseas, not a chance. Yes, for Lottie there was. In 1873, she found her way to serve the people of China, halfway around the world, to share the hope of Jesus Christ. Her role as a missionary to China was one without comparison. She began as a teacher to young women. Young women. She continued and became evangelistic in nature, going to any community, any farming town that she could go to in China, anywhere where people would listen. She then found the first mission station in China for missionaries where they could come and be trained before they went out into the different areas of China. But she also began to write letters back home to Baptist churches that supported her or in her contention didn't support her. She was seeking financial support and more missionaries, specifically men. She was persistent to say the least. After all, if you're four feet, three inches tall, and you weigh in at less than 75 pounds, you better be feisty, and you have to be strong in your faith. After years of serving as a missionary in China, Lottie died in 1912. She had been overworked and burdened by the simple needs of the millions of those around her who had needs financially, spiritually, Lottie died on Christmas Eve. She was on a ship leaving Japan for America. And in her final hours, she was heard singing to the nurse that accompanied her, Jesus loved me. And she made a final Chinese greeting gesture towards heaven. Two people from history. Charles Schwab, one who lived for more driven by the pursuit of possessions, died alone, left his family with nothing, no heirs, no future, just the end of an empty pursuit. From a billionaire to broken. Lottie Moon lived and died pursuing the hope of eternity for countless people in China who had never heard the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ. But following her death, something happened. Following her death on Christmas Eve, a movement began. A movement for more missionaries. But she, like us, as a church, was and we are a part of Baptist missions. Today, that is called the International Mission Board. And a few years after Lottie's passing, they established a yearly offering that we still participate in even today. It's called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Now this year is amazing. 
We have been so blessed by the faithfulness of our congregation that we are able to pledge $50,000 of our budget surplus towards this offering. Why? Because we don't want to trust in our riches. Instead, we want to make decisions and those decisions lead us in directions led by generosity and thankfulness. But if I could be so bold to ask something of you, let's not make 50,000 the end of our giving to this offering. What if we matched it? What if we doubled it? I know things are in reality for many of you watching this very difficult right now. Christmas is upon us. So this is not a guilt offering. It is an opportunity for us to step up into something bigger than us. The offering now that she established and pushed for over a hundred years ago was to support missionaries. And now it goes to support over 4,500 missionaries and their families all over the world. Men, women, children who are stepping into the darkest, most difficult, spiritually bankrupt areas of the world. And whose example are they following? Someone like Lottie Moon. Now, if you want to give directly to this offering, then on our e-giving, if you're not coming in person, you can go to our website and go to our giving section. And there's a spot that you can drop down and give directly to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lottie, she trusted. Not in the things that she could have, her family's wealth or her education status. She trusted in the Lord and it led her decisions and charted her direction all the way around the world. At one point she said this, why should we not do something that will prove that we are really in earnest in claiming to be followers of him? Though he was rich, for our sake, became poor. Lottie's legacy has impacted missionaries for over a hundred years. Personally, and I think you would too, I'll take her investment over Schwab's any day. She understood James 5, 1 through 6 in a way that few ever grasped. What led her decision? She trusted the Lord. What about us today? Prior to continuing our message, I want you to hear a few words of thanks from those who are currently supported through this offering, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. For giving. For giving. Thank you for your giving. The Lottie Moon offering. Toward Lottie Moon. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But most importantly, due to your generosity, we've been able to share God's word with those around us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, First Baptist Church in Riverside, California. Because you gave, I'm able to access remote areas of Central Asia and explain the gospel with people God is already drawing to himself. With your help, we are bringing light the dark places among unreached people groups. Because of what you've given, it allows me to share this gospel with as many Central Asians as I can across London. Your giving allows our organization to provide need for refugees and to give them hope. 
Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering so that we can buy Bibles in Arabic that we use with our Discovery Bible Study with non-believers. Because of your generosity, African women are hearing stories from God's Word while henna is being drawn on their hands and arms. And because of your giving, the life changes that we see through faith in Jesus Christ, that happens because of your gifts. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and helping to provide this wonderful water filter here in Northern Thailand. Your giving allows me to continue with my medical license here in Ghana, where I can not only do surgeries, but also the patients have the opportunity to hear the gospel. So thank you. Because of your giving, I'm able to speak to these thousand kids every Wednesday morning. Thank you. Thank you, First thank Baptist, Baptist Church. Thank you, Faith Promise Church. Thank you, Christina Baptist Church. Thank you for giving to Latimu. Thank you, and God bless you. I want to echo to you who are watching today. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness in 2020 and 2021 to our offerings, our budget that supports our staff, our ministries, and, and our giving to foreign missions, but also to a lot of our community ministries this year. Your faithfulness is what has led our church leaders to be able to make the decision to give to Lottie Moon out of abundance in 2021. Again, thank you. But once again, I'm painfully thankful for James. Grabbing me by the heart, and he examines once again the views, my views and yours of our treasures, our possessions, our wealth. A couple of questions as we move forward towards next week, our final week in the book of James. And whom or what do I trust? If we put our trust and hope and possessions and decisions, our decisions and our direction, they begin to be controlled and led by those possessions. In the end, James says, what's the return? Rotten, moth-eaten, corroded possessions which lead us to make decisions towards others based out of what? Verse 1 through 6, greed, self-indulgence, even fraud. It's pretty weighty and grown-up material from James. But one final question regarding verses 1 through 6. How do we react when we've been blessed? Again, posing this another way, when with the resources that God has given you, a lot or a little, do we, do I handle those blessings with generosity, with an open hand, or do I hold them tightly, trusting in the riches rather than the provider? of those treasures. The truth is the tighter I cling my hands and my heart around those possessions, the tighter their grip is on my decisions and directions. According to James, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, God blesses us for the purpose of blessing others. Jesus taught this in many moments of his teaching as he made disciples. I find it very convincing that James spent six verses towards the end of this letter exploring wealth, riches, 
and our trust in those areas of our life. He knew then, and we know now, this struggle is real for every one of us. In whom or what do I trust? Next week, we're going to take one last look at faith with action through James, verse 7 through 12, and on to the ending of James. One final hurdle, though, I want to give you a heads up on. That James is going to leap over, or should I say into, one final destination for him to lead us toward. Patience. Patience in suffering. Patience in relationships. Patience and persistence in our prayers. Again, each of those conversations on patience will be governed by in whom do we trust. Thank you so much for joining us online this weekend and choosing to trust in God who provides. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And while this week we took a lot of time looking at two people from history, God, I I pray that we see the drastic difference of one whose decisions begin to be led by and guided by and controlled by the pursuit of more. And another who had more, but as you began to work in her life, she began to make decisions each day that were more about others, more about her resources being used, more about her education being used, more about her talents being used, for the benefit of others to hear the message of Jesus. And it began and it led her to a very distinct direction in her life. Thank you, God, for that example that we're able to see. May it challenge us to truly ask whom or what do I trust? Because if I answer that honestly, I I can begin to see the directions and decisions I make. Thank you, God, for your word and its conviction on each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.